Good morning, church. Beautiful day this morning. It's good to be here and worship with you today. Uh, we have a new month. It is the first Sunday in September, and so that brings uh, with it a new memory verse for this month. This month, just one line, uh, something that should be easy for us to remember and to memorize together. Let's say it for the first time together uh, right now. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21. A good precursor, getting our hearts and minds ready for our series that's upcoming uh, in the book of Philippians that we're going to be starting here in just a few weeks we're looking forward to. We're continuing today in our seven habits of a healthy Christian community, and we turn our attention today to the habit of practicing community. And as we've worked through this series together, we have looked at it in light of the ministry priorities that we have here at Calvary Monument Bible Church, and we've done that with the following considerations. Uh, in our minds as we've studied together, that these habits guide the focus of our ministries here, that each of these habits were important to and were exemplified by Jesus while he was ministering here on earth. We see these habits prioritized and practiced by the early church and her leaders. We know that each of these habits is healthy for every Christian community throughout the world, and we recognize that there's Christian churches and faith communities that are going to apply these habits uh, differently in different parts of the world as well. And so it's interesting to me that when Jesus came to earth, being God, fully God, in the flesh, he could have absolutely, on his own, done the work that the Father had given him to do. And he could have done it by himself. He was powerful enough. He was mighty enough. He was strong enough. He was sufficient enough. And yet, that is not the way he chose to do it. Nor is it the way that God intended for it to be done. So as we consider community today, and as we look at this topic of practicing community there's two questions that we want to explore from our text. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn them on and go ahead and flip to Luke chapter 5 or open them up and flip to Luke chapter 5 a while. The first question is, in what ways do we see Jesus demonstrating for his disciples how to live in salt, as salt and light in community with others? And the second question, what words did Jesus leave with his first disciples, his earliest followers, the initiators of his earliest churches that would help shape, encourage, and motivate them uh, to form healthy Christian communities, both then and now for us still today. As we turn our attention to addressing those questions this morning, and we, we uh, will look at Luke 5 in just a moment, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you. Uh, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his example. We thank you uh, that you are a God who calls us into community. You call us into community uh, with one another, but also through Jesus as we come to know him, we are adopted into your family as your children, a part of a community that goes far beyond ourselves, one that you've established that's called your church. And Lord, we desire to do community well, but as we live in this world today, we recognize that there is so much that threatens to offset that. Lord, there is so much divisiveness and polarization in our world today in so many different arenas. 
And yet the call to love is no less important today than it was when Jesus walked this earth. We are called to love you, to grow in our love for you, and to love those that you've placed in our paths. And Father, we recognize that in doing that, uh, you can do something beautiful in that. You you draw people together uh, for your purposes and for your glory, and you call us into community with one another. Help us to learn from the example of Jesus uh, Jesus today in Luke chapter 5 as we look towards him. Just guide and direct this time that we have in the study of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 5 today, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he, this is Jesus, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little bit from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep, and let your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, They left everything and followed him. So three of the four gospel accounts include this account of Jesus calling his first disciples. It's in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22, and Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. Those are included in your note guides if you'd like to further explore them this week. But as Luke's account unfolds, it's the dawning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And already Jesus has found himself in some hot water. In the previous chapter, in in chapter 4, we find there's an account of his temptation in the wilderness and his rejection in the town of Nazareth. In Nazareth, Jesus had gone into a synagogue in chapter 4 and he'd opened the scroll of Isaiah and he had read from it, ultimately implying that he was the fulfillment of of Isaiah's prophecy. Now this caused the congregation that had gathered to grow enraged, even to the point where they tried to throw Jesus off a cliff, but he was able to escape. And as Luke's gospel account continues to uncover and unpack the early days of Jesus's ministry, we find him teaching in the temple and casting out demons as one with authority like no one else before had had. And though there were some who treated Jesus, both his message and his ministry, with great contempt, he was endearing himself to many others. We find an example of Jesus drawing near to the community that he had come to serve 
towards the end of the fourth chapter of Luke, where Jesus is in the home of a man named Simon Peter, and he's healing Peter's mother. So Luke brings his accounting of Jesus' earthly ministry full circle in chapter 4. It's a beautiful chapter, right before 5. At the beginning, Jesus is rejected and he's almost killed. But now at the very end of the chapter, the crowds are begging Jesus to stay with them. It's a request to which Jesus responds this way in verse 43 of chapter 4. He says this, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns too, for that is what I was sent to do. And so he continued his ministry and he was beginning to establish for himself quite the reputation among the towns and synagogues that he entered. As the savior of the world, Jesus could have completed the full extent of his earthly ministry alone and by himself, yet this is not how God or Jesus intended his earthly ministry to go. As God in flesh, Jesus had firmly established from the beginning of his earthly ministry that he would be participating in the lives of the communities and the individuals that he was sent to seek and save. And so chapter 5, it opens up giving us further insight regarding how Jesus was participating in these communities. He's along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, or Lake Gennesaret, as it would have also been known. Here are some images. These are actual images from along the shorelines of the Sea of Galilee. This would have been a hub. It was a hub in Jesus' day for the local community. For the people that Jesus came to reach. There's a crowd that's gathering as Luke's account shares. It's, they're coming around him. They want to hear his message. It's a message that's proven to be powerful and life-giving. Jesus is preaching the good news of the kingdom. God has come to earth, making himself available as the savior of all people. That whosoever would believe or trust would find in him eternal life. And the evidence that was following this true belief was the same as it is today. True belief in Jesus' day was followed by confession, repentance of sin, a desire to identify with Jesus through water baptism. And these behaviors and characteristics aligned a person with the mission, with the message, and with the methods of Jesus. And as Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom, he was also demonstrating the power of God's kingdom. Now, in a way, on earth, in the person of Jesus. And in this, friends, we find evidence that a part of the gospel's power is its ability to draw a crowd. To bring people together as they are transformed and changed by its message. Friends, this is us. This is we, the church, we are a called out group of people, a group of people who have been changed and transformed by the powerful message of the gospel. And that message was powerful even when Jesus was walking the face of the earth. As the crowd is growing and getting bigger and more people are pulling around, what we find in our account today is that Jesus is 
looking. He begins to look for a more effective way to communicate and to share his message with the audience. And what does he see? Just offshore, there are two unoccupied commercial fishing vessels. Now, when I read this account early in the week, for some reason, my mind went to Captain Jack Sparrow. <laughs> I can only imagine Jesus standing on the shore thinking, well, those, they're two unoccupied fishing vessels. Uh, this might be a good opportunity for me to find a, a, a better way to communicate the message. And if you remember, for Captain Jack, in the minds of the British guards, he was the world's what? Worst pirate ever. <laughs> Yet somehow, he always seemed to be able to commandeer nearby unoccupied ships. So too does Jesus. Now on the screen here, this is an actual, this is amazing. They found in the Sea of Galilee, at one point when the water receded, they were able to find a fishing vessel at the bottom of the lake. And this is a vessel from the first century, from around the time of Jesus. So you see an artistic rendition on one side, and you see the actual vessel that was found in Galilee on the other. In verse 3 in chapter 5, it just simply explains that after Jesus sees the unoccupied boats, he gets into one of them. It just so happened it was Simon's boat. Now Luke, he's the most detail-minded of all the gospel writers, and he doesn't seem to mention whether or not Jesus asked Simon's permission to commandeer his boat. Perhaps Jesus was relying on the power of the relationship that he had established in his previous encounter with Simon where he was healing his mother. But regardless of the details, Jesus finds himself in Peter's boat. And he needs to create for himself some separation from himself and the crowd in order that more people could hear him and that he could sit down. Now, sitting down, we might look at that and say, why? Why would sitting down be important? In Jesus' culture, in Jesus' day, sitting down was very important, especially for a teacher or a rabbi. You see, today, uh, we have pulpits, and when a pastor gets up and comes behind the pulpit, we know it's time for the opening and the proclamation of God's word, and we, we have a posture that we kind of sit, a listening and hearing posture that we kind of assume. The same exact posture was true for a rabbi when he sat in Jesus's day. Same exact thing. When a rabbi sat in Jesus's day, the people knew it was time to listen. It was time to learn. It was time to hear. Not only that, but if you think about the water and a boat, when Jesus pushes out from shore on this boat, he can sit down, and the topography around the Sea of Galilee made it perfect to reach and teach large groups of people from just offshore. As Jesus sat to teach in the boat on the water, some scholarship and research suggests that his audience, uh, most likely numbering in the thousands, could have heard him clearly even up to three hundred feet away from his physical distance. Now think about it. Water, 
his voice carrying over the water and the topography of the sea. What happens when you move away from water? What happens to the land? It goes which way? Up. And so it serves as a backdrop reflecting or deflecting the sound so that people could hear. And all within the beginning of this account, what we have is an example of Jesus' posture in and towards his community. Jesus goes to where the common, everyday people of his day and age would have been congregating. And he goes with great purpose. It's not by accident. It's not like, oh, what am I going to do today? Oh, what, what message am I going to share today? He's going and he's going with purpose. He has both a message, but he doesn't just have a message. He has an invitation as well. And his message would be good news. It would be life-giving. It would be hope-filled. While his invitation, as we're going to see very soon at first, is is it's very mysterious. It's certainly discomforting for those who have gathered, especially the fishermen, perhaps even a bit unraveling, unsettling for them. But ultimately, it would prove to be powerful, transformative, wonderfully inspiring, and marvelously motivating for, the, for them finding purpose in their life. In Jesus' invitation, we see this starting in verse 4, he's going to start with meeting the owners of these commercial fishing vessels where they are currently at, and then he will show them and call them to something far greater. So he meets them where they're at, and he calls them and shows them that there's something far greater available. In verse 4, Jesus has finished teaching, and now the expert fisher of people was going to give a lesson on commercial fishing to the fishers of fish. And in this lesson, he's in a way showing all of those who would be called his disciples that abundant life was available to those who would follow Jesus. Look at verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and lower your nets for a catch. Now this is, this is not how commercial fishing worked in the ancient Near East. In Israel, during the time of Jesus, fishermen fished through the night. They slept during the day. These men were tired men. Men in the congregation today are watching online. How many of you when you are tired after a long day's work, just can't wait to get home to be told to go back to work and do it all over again without getting rest or sleeping. That's what Jesus was doing here. They had already worked. And not only would they have to motivate themselves to get back on these boats, but these were commercial fishermen who had employees. Now imagine... First, having to motivate yourself to turn around and go right back to work without rest, but then also having to motivate two or three people who you employ, who also just finished working. And now you're going to have to tell them, oh, we're not done. We have to go back, get on the boat, and start all over again. I don't know if it would go over very well. 
There's more than one boat here. I mean, there's a lot of people involved in this. Multiple men, tired from a full night's work, cleaning out their nets, ready to go home, see their families, go to bed, and then having to wake up only to do it all over again the next day. But now, Jesus is saying, get out. Let's do it again. Not only that, but friends, the fishermen fished at night for a reason. You know why? Why did they fish at night? That was the best time for them to fish. That's when they caught the most fish. Fishing during the day was not advantageous. It was also not very profitable for them. It's not the ideal time of day for commercial fishermen to be out on the lake. And yet, Simon respects Jesus enough to listen. Look at verse 5. After he gives a little bit of an excuse, he says what? But at your word, at your word, I will lower the nets. It doesn't make sense. This does not make sense. On paper, it doesn't look right. doesn't sound right. But friends, obedience is an important indicator of true discipleship. And Simon... He's tired. He's uncertain, perhaps even a bit disturbed by Jesus' inconvenient request. But he obeys nonetheless. And verse 6, isn't it amazing? It tells us that they caught so many fish that their nets began to tear. So full were their nets that they needed to motion to their partners in other boats to come and help them unload so that the nets wouldn't break and the boats wouldn't sink. This is a miraculous Hall of fish. And it teaches us much about Jesus and much about his way of inviting community. Church, Jesus relates to his people right where they're at. He meets them in their places of employment. He joins with them in their day-to-day activities. He participates with us in our work. And in the midst of us, he shows us And he calls us towards a far greater purpose and an abundantly life-giving mission. I mean, notice how Jesus' perspective is very different than the fisherman's perspective. To the fishermen, none of this should make any sense. They've already worked. They're tired. The cleanup had already begun. The time to fish for enterprise, it had passed. There is a myriad of reasons not to obey Jesus. A myriad of reasons that they could have given and excuses that they could have come up with to justify not being obedient and to continue to do things the way that they, in their minds, knew best. Or perhaps knew worked. Friends, there's some similar sentiments in our world today. Are there not? How much, how often should we have to forgive? How much should we turn the other cheek before we stand up and fight back? How long are we supposed to be nice? Look at what being kind and loving has gotten us. It doesn't make sense to lay down your life for someone that wants to destroy you. Sacrifice. Haven't we already given enough? Our world and our culture 
Our surroundings are always creating wars that we have to win and battles we have to fight. And the next thing you know, we find all kinds of reasons to justify hatred and bigotry and marginalization or just plain indifference to people who think, live, and even maybe worship differently than we do. And what is often overlooked in all of that is that Jesus could have made the same arguments regarding me. For I was once at enmity with God, dead in my trespasses and sins, opposed to God. I was a child of wrath, turned away, an enemy of Jesus. That's who I was. An enemy. Oh, if I was a war for Jesus to win or a battle for Jesus to fight. But Jesus never saw me like that. I was a person for him to reach, for him to seek, for him to save, for him to love. A bridge so that he could make me right before God. Amazingly, Jesus not only proclaimed the message of the kingdom, he did, but he practiced it too. He laid down his life to save the very people who were turned against him. That's what he did. And there is a mission and a ministry that we've been given by Jesus. He's asked us to obey his commands. And his commands, as he has summed up in multiple ways, every way has involved love of God and love of neighbor. And friends, this is sometimes uncomfortable and unsettling. And in our minds, by our limited perspectives, which they are for the short time we've been given on this earth, it may not always appear in our minds or in our ways that it works. However, The question is for us, church, will we have faith to trust the voice of Jesus and believe that he is working, that it's his work that changes hearts, that it's his work that changes minds, that it's his work that transforms and redirects lives and calls us to live as he has shown us. It's his work that motivates love. He's demonstrated for us how to love. Friends, this is a supernatural life that we've been called to. It's not easy. It's not supposed to be. It's not comfortable. It doesn't always look right on paper. The numbers won't add up. And to most of our political leaders on both sides, it makes no sense when the church refuses to demoralize, demonize, or denigrate others for our own advantage or gain. But as Jesus draws us into Christian community with one another through the power of the gospel, we come to find that we are healthiest and most effective when we are not just proclaiming his message, but also living in accordance with it. In the beginning of the narrative, Jesus is teaching the gospel. 
In verses 4 to 7, he is demonstrating a part of its power, its miraculous power. And through it all, Jesus, while he is on earth and early here in his ministry, he's establishing something of eternal significance, a community, a, a body that would serve as his very own after he left the earth. Peter and all of those who were with him, those who witnessed this miraculous event, are astonished. And many of them are changed forever. Jesus is doing something here. He's establishing something. Let's not forget the nature of this miracle. It's an, as- an aspect of Peter's complaint surrounded the reality that the men had fished all night and caught nothing. We've already been doing it the right way, Jesus. We've been fishing all night. We've caught nothing. And as scholarship regarding ancient Near Eastern fishing practices on the Galilean Sea has, have examined this account in accordance with what is known regarding fishing during this period, it is believed that the disciples in this miracle hauled in nearly three quarters of a ton of fish. That's what it, about what it would have taken to sink two of those commercial fishing boats. About three quarters of a ton of fish. This would have been an amount that given normal circumstances would have taken several days, perhaps even weeks, for the fishermen to accumulate it. Jesus does it like this. And when he experiences and sees this miracle, Peter's posture changes dramatically. Look at verse 8. First, Peter was complaining and saying, okay, but Jesus, fine, we'll do it for you. But then verse 8, Simon Peter sees what happens. He falls down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Friends, when we're confronted, when our communities, when our neighbors, when the people that we've been called to reach are confronted with the grace and the goodness of Jesus, when they see the message of the gospel lived out and hear it proclaimed, God has a way of bringing repentance God has a way of bringing and producing these humble postures of confession, life change. And Peter feels this grief that leads to repentance. And though he asked Jesus to go away from him, a cry almost like the prophet Isaiah's when he was confronted with the power of God, Jesus does not intend to abandon Peter, does he? He has far greater plans for Peter and Peter's business associates. I mean, this is a posture, friends. This posture Peter has found, it's one that's mightily and purposefully used of God throughout the Bible. You remember Paul, Apostle Paul? Did he say to the church, I came to you high and mighty and powerful with great words and strong rhetoric. Follow me because I'm beautiful. Is that, was that Paul's message to the church in Corinth? No. It's the opposite. I'm weak. I'm not, I'm not a man of strong speech. 
It's humble. Confessing. Ministering out of a place of weakness. And isn't it beautiful that as, as Peter cast himself down in a posture of repentance and confession at Jesus' feet, and as he tells Jesus to go away from him because he is a sinful man, that Jesus, because Peter, I'm a sinful man, because of his unbelief, Jesus doesn't cast out or reject Peter. Rather, once Peter recognizes and confesses his sin, Jesus draws him close in order to eventually send him out. This was Peter throughout the Gospels, a bumbling, faithless fisherman. We always say it, Peter had what? Foot-in-mouth syndrome. Right? Jesus gave him a nickname, Rocky, Old Stonehead. But he used Peter mightily to establish his church. You see, this is a powerful miracle. But friends, this miracle was never really about the physical fish in the water. Miraculous as it was. Jesus is going to fuel the imagination of his disciples with visions of a far greater catch. A catch that would establish a global community. A fisherman typically, as far as I've known in my life, a fisherman will typically catch fish in order to do what? Kill them and sell them for profit so people can eat them. But look at what Jesus does. Under the economy of Jesus, there's a new kind of fisherman. And this kind of fisherman goes into the world to catch fish that are already dead and through Jesus give those dead fish life, abundant life. Verse 10 and 11, Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. When Jesus calls us to something great, fear is often one of the first things that follows. When Jesus calls us to something uncertain, something unknown, something that can be a bit scary and unsettling like he was calling his disciples to, fear often follows. And sometimes it can be paralyzing. Jesus knew that. Do not be afraid. He's not going to leave Peter. From now on, you will be catching people. So when they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. It was a priority for Jesus at the dawning of his earthly ministry to establish a community of disciples, both men and women, whom he could train, equip, and send into the world to fulfill the commission that God had and would be giving them. This is what he does. From the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus doesn't say, all right, people, I'm going at this alone. This is my call. This is my job. This is my duty. This is my cross. To all his disciples, he says what? Take up your what? Cross. That's an invitation to participation. Jesus is drawing and creating and pulling together 
a community of people that he could mightily work through to change the world and the establishment of his church. So what were the words that Jesus left with his first disciples? Those initiators of the earliest churches that would help shape and encourage and motivate the formation of healthy Christian communities both then and today. You know, it's interesting, at the end of his life, Jesus could have given up on this novel idea of a godly community, right? I mean, he called disciples unto himself at the end of his life how many are left. All that time invested. All that energy. And what, three or four remain? Most had rejected him. Many had abandoned him. Some had denied him. A few had betrayed him, one in particular. The very community, the very people that Jesus was sent to seek and save, what did they do to him? Put him on a cross. Boy, and after the resurrection, it would have been nothing to say, you know, that was a great idea, but guys, it really didn't work. You know what? Better just everybody go at it on their own. That's not what he does. There's a moving scene at the end of Jesus' life. It comes at the very end of John's gospel. Jesus has already been crucified. His disciples are devastated. So what do they go back to doing? You remember? They go back to fishing. That's what they knew. John 21. Peter actually says it. Guys, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. Peter sets out on the water. It's another long night. And as the sun peaks over the water, guess what? He finds himself in a similar position. Nothing to show for his labor. John 21, he's fished all night, and guess what? Not a fish. As they near the shores, there's a stranger on the beach. And the stranger calls out, he says, isn't this interesting, the words Jesus uses here? Children, you don't have any fish, do you? (laughs) It's a question. He knows. He's God. He knows there's no fish in those nets. Their response is short, it's terse, simple, no. So the stranger on shore says, Throw your nets on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. And as they do it, once again, they find themselves with a catch too large to manage. Peter knows. In the account, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Peter knows now who the stranger on shore is. It's Jesus. Jesus had successfully reeled in Peter as a disciple. And Peter's carrying this weight of shame from his denial of Jesus before the crucifixion. And once again, Peter becomes like a fish. How did Peter become like a fish? What did he do? He jumps in. He plunges into the water. He's not even going to wait for the boats to be rowed up on shore. He races for the shoreline. He must get to Jesus before the others. On the shore, Jesus had already prepared breakfast. Guess what it was? Fish. 
By the way, there's a theme in Jesus' earthly ministry. It revolves around fishing. Bread and fish. Bread, the image of the body of Christ. An image that we'll remember today in communion. A symbol that his body had been broken. Fish, a not-so-subtle reminder of the mission that Jesus was once again going to affirm and restore. So here comes Peter, broken, full of shame, not knowing what to expect from Jesus. He gets on the shore, and what does Jesus do? Care for my lambs, tend to the flock, feed my sheep. Friends, community is hard. Community can be confusing. It can be unsettling to live side by side, work side by side, go to school side by side with people who think differently, live differently, perhaps even worship differently than we do. But it was important to Jesus. And it should be important to his disciples as well. How do we do it? Two times in that chapter, John 21, Jesus gives us a hint. He reminds Peter to keep his focus in the right place. Two times in John 21, Jesus knows, friends, that it's going to be hard. And he offers some words. Some words that are helpful for the church when we are hoping to establish and develop and function as a healthy Christian community. Friends, these two words are as vital to that today as they were to Peter all the way back then. Follow me. Follow me. We don't make ourselves fishers of people Jesus does that work in and through us as we are faithful and obedient to follow him. The ways of Jesus, we know, friends, they're going to push against this culture and this world. They are ways that are very discomforting in the world we live in today. You see, Jesus moves us to love and sacrifice when someone else opposes us. Jesus moves us towards postures of kindness and gentleness when others mistreat us and are abrasive. He moves us towards peace when the world cries, war, 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 fight, 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 battle, battle, battle. Jesus moves us towards faithfulness when the world says you can have it your way. Jesus moves us towards patience when we're told that we can and we must have it now. His ways moves us towards confession and repentance of sin when the world says do what you want or treat people however you want. His ways move us towards justice and righteousness when the world marginalizes, oppresses, labels, and denigrates. His ways move us towards self-control when we're told that we can take whatever we want. His ways find us anchored to joy in a world of grief and despair. When loss encompasses and pain threatens to sear into our very souls, His ways carry us towards perseverance and endurance. His ways 
Give us bold confidence to proclaim the truth of the life-giving, light-shining message. The one that frees those who are shackled by darkness. His ways beckon us to the cross, to death, to weakness, to suffering, to pouring out our lives for one another like a drink offering until the time of our departure from this earth. To live as sojourners, as aliens, as hopeful wanderers in this world filled with sin and depravity. These are Jesus' ways. They're the ways of his kingdom. They're the ways of healthy Christian communities. When Jesus says, follow me, he gives us both a message and a model that he can use to help form, shape, and fuel life-giving community. And what undermines healthy community is pride, prestige, platforms, power plays, all the things that are part of this world system. Friends, if we desire to be effective disciple makers in the community where God has planted us both locally and globally, then we must commit to doing it His way. His way. Jesus says, follow me. Calvary Monument Bible Church, He's inviting us to be doers of His words and not just hearers. Let's do it together. As our team comes, we're going to have some special music today to prepare our hearts and minds for communion. What an appropriate Sunday to participate in communion on the coattails of a message on community. Before they sing, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony of Jesus, how he lived on this earth, how he showed us, demonstrated for us the ways that are life-giving, that are sustaining, the ways that will help us to be the salt and light that you've called us to be in the communities that you've placed us in. Lord, we know this is not easy. We know that it's uncomfortable, and you know too, but we also believe, Lord, we have faith that it's your power at work within us and that you are greater than the one who is in this world. You are greater And you've chosen to live in us and through us. So we want to make a difference for you, Lord. And we want to follow the message and the method and the model of Jesus. And we need your help to do that. As we prepare our hearts for communion today, Lord, we want to come before you with consciences that are free and clear from sin, uncluttered with the distractions of this world. Help us to confess and to repent of any sin that may be an obstacle uh, right now in our relationship with you or someone else. Lord, help us to remember and to proclaim the power of your death and your resurrection. We are so thankful for the body and the blood of Jesus. And we are so thankful that you've called the church as your community, your body, that we get to participate in this together as a family sharing in a meal that represents the one who saved us and gave his life for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.